Wait, is this one of those things I have to ask Scott about? It's not our job to explain that. It's totally up it to It was Scott. your parents' job or something, or your friends when you were in elementary <laughs> school. I was left out of a lot of loops. <laughs> <laughs> to another episode of 1980s now a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today hey guys my name's will and joining me as always are my friends and co-host cat and john hey guys guys hey happy to see you as always he, mm-hmm. don't forget in addition to his co-hosting duties here john also hosts his own podcast gen uh, x grown up thank you hey i am really excited about today's show because we're going to talk about you know we're going to do 1980s news in just a moment here and uh, but a little bit later on you're going to hear uh, our chat with Singer, songwriter, composer, producer, original founding member of Information Society, Paul mm. Robb. I am a big <laughs> fan of Information Society. I have been way back since I want to say 85 or 86 when Running came out and nobody knew who they were. Uh, <laughs> but because I was a DJ at the time, you know, I'll talk about that later. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> before that, we'll review current news stories related to, I don't have any clever puns, but I know what we're going to talk about. Oh. Mm-hmm. We're going to review <laughs> review current news stories related to 1980s media, including mm-hmm. uh, a backstory for a secondary aliens character, mm-hmm. a rock legend gets the Barbie treatment, and mm-hmm. Prince's picks that are now Prince mm-hmm. Prince's picks that became Prince, Prince's <laughs> picks that became Prince are now worth a minute. No. Do you know what Prince's prick is? Prince's prick? Did I say Prince's prick? Yes, that prick was in there. Okay. Right Prince's in there. picks that became Prince are now worth a minute. Uh, I, <laughs> all right, anyway, back to the show. Okay. All right, hey, a couple of announcements. This Tuesday... October 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Join us on Facebook Live for 1980s trivia. I feel like that's all I should say. I feel like we'll scare people away if we say we're going to do more than that. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes, do that. And I'll say this. Well, John will be there. All three of us will be there. Yeah, John will be there, And at least one of us will be in costume for sure, I could say. Because one I trust, Hmm. I know that when they say they're going to do something, they do it. And that's Cat. And the other two of us... may check it out or whatever. So, yeah. so hey, one of us will be in costume. So join us on uh, on Facebook Live on Tuesday, October 25th at 7 p.m. for 1980s Trivia. Someone's going to walk away with a $50 e-gift card. Yes. Not just someone, the person Ooh. who knows the most. I mean, right? Well, yeah. That's good. Wins the Can it be me? Yeah. Can I win at my eligible? Person. <laughs> okay. And the other thing I was going to say is we're going to do, we're going to do actually do our live podcast leading up to the trivia. I mean, should we nope. say that? I mean, are people going to get scared away now or not? No, you want the 50 bucks, no. you sit through the podcast. They, they love <laughs> just, us, right? They love listening to us. Yes. They're going to stick around. Yeah, okay. they'll, they'll be there. Who would want to miss it? Yeah. You want to see That's all right. the amazing live news before you get a chance to win 50 yeah. simoleons. Yeah. That's I, look, right. I'm going to be there just because I want to see how Kat dresses up. How do you know it's going to be me? <laughs> we know. Another announcement. Hey, remember just a few months ago, I made a new friend and someone who I long admired, Lori Miller. Uh, I spoke to her uh, just a few months ago. She is a original, an original founding member of the group Exposé. Mm-hmm. Look, you should just listen to the interview because we covered so much ground and learned so much about sort of the mm-hmm. real story about what happened at the beginnings of this group that ultimately went on to find such great success. But Lori was there at the ground floor, helped get the record deal and so on and so forth. Anyway, listen to our interview. And actually in an interview also, she teased this, which is now come up. Uh, 
come to be after expose in 1986 she had a she had recorded some some solo tracks mm-hmm. and one of them she, without her even knowing it you know in the last several years became very popular among club DJs I'm talking about oh. right now uh, wow. I think in particular overseas Okay. So much so that a record label at a, that's got some offices, including one out of Amsterdam, approached her and said, hey, can we reissue this on a vinyl again? Oh, ah. cool. Because DJs can't find it. Apparently, it's, you know, mm-hmm. the original ones were selling for so much money because there's, you know, just limited pressings of it back from 19, in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I believe, again, listen to the interview. She found the original physical tape of it, you know, the mm-hmm. masters, which they used right. to then create, uh, re- recreate, reissue a vinyl pressing of her song, Love is a Natural Magical Thing. Mm-hmm. And so you can get yours right now. I've already ordered mine. Oh, um, I was going to ask you. And I'm probably going to butcher <laughs> the names of this record company here. It looks like, it looks Uh-oh. like, look, they do have an office in Italy. So maybe it is like Paisaggi <laughs> Records. Okay. I'm going to say. Mm. But, mm-hmm. but I actually ordered my copy through rubadub.co.uk, which is the distributor of the record as well. We'll put the links in the record. description down below. Mm-hmm. You can- Get your hands mm-hmm. on your own. I can't wait to get mine. Another vinyl. So what are you going to do with your, your copy of this new vinyl? You're going to yeah. get back into DJing? You're going to do some, uh, <laughs> some, some cross mixing and some scratching and some wiggy wiggy? What you got Absolutely. Wiggy, All wiggy. those things, John. That's right. Yeah. I'm probably, okay. probably going to frame it in here, I think. I don't know. Uh, I'll open it. Maybe. Well, I'm going to frame it and mount it, I think. Nice. I have a new record. Get that out of here. Turn that down. <laughs> <laughs> you see all that stuff all the time. Is that new? Well, yeah, it, it came in the mail. Oh, is that from the care package? Yeah. yeah. Oh, this okay. is from John. This is from John. He's continuing to feed your addiction. Oh, yeah. I was trying to get her off the sauce, John. Were you? Mm-hmm. It wasn't working. Got her back. <laughs> oh, look at this. Look at this. Oh, my God. More stuff. Uh. More stuff that no one could see except for me and John. <laughs> Well, what podcast. it makes the YouTube video. Now there's a reason to go and subscribe to the YouTube channel so you can oh, see all the cool go. stuff yeah. you've got. It, it said, for those of you who can't see, it says the official yeah. lyric book, the complete words to all their songs. Although that's not exactly true because time, right. this is from back in the eighties. <laughs> they have a lot more songs since then, but, um, as you know, it, it has the, the first two albums for sure. <laughs> but not mm-hmm. something you had before, right? New in it your is collection? not something awesome. I had before awesome. and it's amazing mm-hmm. and it has cool Great. extra stuff in it. So now yeah. it's a Duran Duran show again. But I can turn, I could turn it into something else. Get that out of here. Cat, quit speaking to your passions. That's not what this show is for. This is a showcase for Will. I'm cutting this all out of the show. No one's ever going to know what any of this is. I'm going to put the video up. It's going to, you're going to be pixelated. Oh. Whatever. Now I sound like a big asshole again. I'm just going to take all this out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so easy to goad him into defensiveness. Okay, so, but <laughs> we love you, Will. After the news, but before Paul, we're going to pick a winner for the Ralph Macchio book contest. Uh, if you didn't catch it on uh, Facebook, we uh, had announced uh, Ralph Macchio. We had invited Ralph Macchio to do a Facebook Live interview like we do with so many of our favorites from the 1980s. Mm. He couldn't make it. He's busy promoting his book. Mm-hmm. But uh, he did send us a book, uh, his new book, Waxing On the Karate Kid and Me. To give away. Well, that and a little thing called Cobra Kai. But yes, promoting the book. That's what he's busy doing. Oh, yes, Cobra Kai. (laughs) He might be doing some of that. Maybe. With that said, let's get caught up on 1980s news. This week in 1980s news, as originally reported by Entertainment Weekly, Aliens Vasquez to reveal backstory of beloved alien franchise character. Mm -hmm. You guys fans of the Aliens film, the sequel to Alien? Yes, Yes. indeed. Of course. I'm not even sure that I saw the first one, but nope. I know I saw the second one. Oh, yeah? One. Oh. yeah. 
it's kind of a Terminator situation. Like the second one was kind of better and yeah. more successful, but the first mm-hmm. one also like Terminator was amazing in its own right. Just a lower budget thing, but yeah, yeah. Oh, love uh-huh. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And way to go James Cameron for doing that twice. <laughs> no kidding. Right. Mm-hmm. And with aliens, it wasn't even his property originally. Like, you know, Terminator was his brainchild mm-hmm. from the beginning. Right. This he jumped in on something that was originally created by Ridley Scott of all people. I mean, it's like, right. you could okay. want to follow that, but right. anyway, few people have stood up against the xenomorphs in the alien franchise, but I want to say few people have stood against the aliens and survived. I mean, there's very mm-hmm. few that have survived. Huh. I count them on one hand. Uh, but Alien's character, Private Vasquez, is definitely one who stood up against the Xenomorphs and definitely one mm-hmm. who didn't survive. Spoiler alert. Oh, shit. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Private Vasquez, the fictional Latina member of the U.S. Colonial Marine Corps in the 1986 yep. hit sci-fi sequel, Aliens is getting a backstory in a new novel. The backstory of the character, who was played by Jeanette Goldstein in James Cameron's film. First thing mm-hmm. that leaves to mind, right? Je- Jeanette Goldstein. <laughs> right, Private Vasquez. Latina. Uh, will be detailed right. in a new book titled Aliens Vasquez and uh, written by Violet Castro. Uh, it's mm-hmm. coming out on mm-hmm. October 25th. It's cool. uh, set to explore the canonical background of the character as well as the story of the children she was forced to leave behind uh, even mm-hmm. before the doomed mission to Hadley's Hope. Private Vasquez had to fight to survive. If you're a fan of the Alien franchise, they you didn't get to learn a lot about Vasquez. I mean, right. she made her presence well known on screen. She was a badass, oh, yeah. and she was a warrior, and she was amazing. Mm-hmm. But she served. She was kind of. I don't say she was a pawn. She was a bishop in this large chess game of aliens. She wasn't the lead character, and. Uh- and he's a robot. I know Bishop. I okay, there you go. Like, oh. If you're going to pick any piece, don't pick Bishop. Don't, don't pick Bishop. Pick. Okay, right, Bishop right, right. is the Bishop. Vasquez is the Knight. We'll say that. The Rook. I'll one of those. A different okay. one that's not Bishop. <laughs> but not the King or Queen. No, no. Because that's no. like uh, Hicks and- We know oh, who no, the Queen the is. the real Queen. The alien Queen. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the King yeah. is Ripley. They're both Queens. Mm. It's a Queen fight. They're both yeah. Queens. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's Queens. So, you know, this just raises the question for me. Look, does anyone really care? Isn't this kind of one of those expansion of a property thing that mm-hmm. I know John is in favor of? <laughs> oh, um, like one of those parallel uh, tangential sort of. Yeah. It's like we're finding out, um, you know, we're going to find out what the, mm-hmm. what were they, uh, valets were, were doing with Ferris, you know, with the car and Ferris Bueller. Right. And Ferris Bueller. Yeah, I, I yeah. feel like this is, this could be cool. You know, even mm-hmm. more than that though, I think if you're an alien fan, it's interesting to learn about Vasquez because she had such a great on-screen presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I even think about, you know, as 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 an entitled white male, yeah. I think about people like Uhura, you know, Nichelle Nichols, who played on there. Mm-hmm. And Vasquez mm-hmm. was one of those things where here's a strong Latina woman that you don't see on the screen a lot. So I imagine yeah. for young women who related to her, it's amazing to have not a non-obvious character who you can relate mm-hmm. to and see on screen doing, you know, non what I say, like obvious or stereotypical Latin jobs doing mm-hmm. a space Marine badass. Yeah. Yeah. Having explored that character, I think is even more important for people who relate to her directly mm-hmm. than probably your generic alien fan. Yeah. I, look, Agreed. Uh, for those reasons. Yes, I agree. It's important. I guess my mm-hmm. question about, does anybody care? That's sort of a, yeah, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is by asking that, I don't mean to discount. Certainly. Oh no, not at all. I get all mm-hmm. that. And I, I get it for lots of reasons and not mm-hmm. the, not the least of which is I see in my daughter's, them seeing female characters represented yeah, yeah, and saying, wow. I mean, seriously, mm-hmm. it seems like it's out of sure. those videos we've seen where my youngest mm-hmm. daughter, when, especially when she was younger, would say things like, and we were very, you know, open-minded liberal yeah, home. Yeah. Her to yeah. say to us, wow, girls could do that too. 
It's like, well, where did you get the idea they couldn't? <laughs> that they couldn't. It's uh, it's it just, embedded. It just seeps it's, in through yeah, yeah, yeah. indoctrination yeah. in society. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's yeah. why it's important yeah. to have those off the map role models yeah. that mm-hmm. don't fit in that mold. Yeah. It's cool. mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. that sense, absolutely 100% important. Mm-hmm. Would I read it? Probably not. But if you made one about um, Bishop, I'm not reading that either, you know? <laughs> right. Yep. And the, the, the right, author right. agrees with you and cites that sort of as her inspiration, John. Uh, Castro, mm-hmm. again, who, who wrote this uh, this new novel, is a Mexican-American right. from San Antonio. She said uh, that she pitched the idea for the book after thinking about the big influence the character had in such a small role. Quote, mm-hmm. it was one of the few depictions that kind of broke the mold of a domestic worker, farm worker, or gangbanger. There you go. Right. Yeah. I saw her and I was like, wow, look at this brown woman. She has a bandana and she's unapologetic about who she is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, she, right. I think in the film, she says she was in a gang or a gangbang or something like that, I think. Oh. But obviously, and according to what mm-hmm. they tease about the book, mm-hmm. um, her family's military background inspires her to travel to space. The cool thing about the character is that yeah. in true like egalitarian character design, her heritage had zero to do with her character, her characterization in the film. It mm-hmm. just happened to be where she came from, and uh-huh. she's an, is an equal badass with the other soldiers. What, yeah. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. That's why, and, you know, and she was a super badass, by the way. Yes. Mm-hmm. She has that great line, too, in Aliens, which is, uh, what is, I can't remember what the character says to her. Hey, Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? <laughs> no, have you? <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> with regard to uh, Goldstein being cast as a Latina character, in 2016, she said, at the time, they were looking for an actress who was big and muscular, and they were wanting to cast a bodybuilder because they didn't think there were any actresses who had, you know, a physique that they wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, she goes on to say, you know what? I tell you the truth. I've never been cast or given the opportunity to audition for a short freckle faced Jewish girl who is half Russian <laughs> and half Moroccan and Brazilian. So I don't think I would work very much at all if that's all I was able to read for. Right. <laughs> Good for her. So, and if you remember, uh, Goldstein appears in a number of different uh, James Cameron films. The one that stands out to me, speaking of Terminator films, she's in Terminator 2. She plays the stepmother of John. Oh, damn. That's right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I did not make that connection until this very instant. A very oh, different cool. looking and acting character. She's in uh, mm-hmm. Titanic also, I believe, although I can't remember oh. what she did in that. Well, she's in the Cameron Repertory Theater, isn't she? Yeah, I was going to say, James Cameron really likes casting her. (laughs) Hey, in other 1980s news, per Variety, Tina Turner gets the Barbie treatment. (laughs) (laughs) Did you play with Barbies, a cat, when you were... Oh, I'm sorry, wait, sorry. After we just did that segment, John or Kat, either of you play with Barbies? (laughs) I have purchased at least one Barbie because I purchased the Ken and Barbie Star Trek set that came out in the mid nineties because they were in Star Trek uniforms. And I thought that was cool. And I invested (laughs) and then the bottom fell out and I sold them for peanuts. But other than that, no, I haven't haven't played with them. I guess not. No, I mean, action figures. Sure. But not Barbies per se. Sure. Yeah. And now I'm going to cut off Kat as she talks to really just lean into the misogyny of our show. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so to Tina Turner, let me explain it to you, Kat. I, just I have something kidding. to say here. Just trying to do the opposite of what we were just talking about was just I know. Our <laughs> moment. All right. I never know with you. <laughs> you don't? You don't know if I was really going to let you talk? No, that's not true. She was sure you weren't. <laughs> I was actually more of an action figure girl. Okay. Um, hmm. But Barbies were part of something that was around, mm-hmm. but um, I liked cutting their hair. <laughs> I liked modifying them for some reason. And um, 
So they didn't ever, you know, stay in the same form (laughs) that they started in. Um, You say, didn't didn't ever grow back. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure that started at an age where I just assumed it might. Did you learn consequences as a result of this? It definitely caused an effect and consequences. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. So I did play with them, but it wasn't in, um, in a, you know imaginary play kind of way it was like okay what can i do with this Hmm. (laughs) kind of way yeah okay (laughs) well then um okay well what was the new story about tina turner barbie Barbie. tina turner barbie doll (laughs) part of the toy company's music series features the grammy winning and chart topping singer in the outfit she wore in the iconic music video for what's love got to do with it and of course this is tied to the song's 40th anniversary and if you see the doll you recognize the outfit right away yeah, yeah. And and the hair, the frosted tips, I saw the picture. It's mm-hmm. just what you expect. Something else that caught my ear, though, that you mm-hmm. said, Will, mm-hmm. it's part of a series of musical artists. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. What else has been out that I missed? Are there other there are, yes. Barbie been, musicians been, that I need? There's been a number of musicians immortalized in this doll form, including David Bowie, Gloria Stefan, Elton John. Mm. Really? Oh, there's at least my goodness. Uh, six or so others. I, I huh. haven't been following this. I didn't uh, know they did that. No, yeah, I didn't. I, mean, know I do the novelty thing, like I said, because I got the goofy Star Trek one that time, but mm-hmm. I wasn't aware they like have done other. I guess it makes sense. It's like Funko yeah. Pops, right? It's like what else can we turn this into? And that's yeah. what they're doing. And I don't oh, know damn. that I've ever seen any of these in the store. I do see some of those novelty dolls, and some of them might have attracted yeah. the attention of my daughter, my youngest. But mm-hmm. okay, not these. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, as we mentioned, she's got the iconic outfit on: the black mini dress, denim jacket, sheer black tights, and black heels. Mm-hmm. As John mm-hmm. mentioned, the most notable. Uh, Part of the doll, though, is her volumized and textured hair, <laughs> which she rocked throughout the 1980s. <laughs> Speaking about that, the designer Bill Greenig said, we used a lot of screen grabs to see the hair at all angles. Mm-hmm. Lots of teasing and hairspray was involved. <laughs> I can't, couldn't have been involved in the final product, though. I mean, is there someone really on the set? No, I'm, ch- I'm sure that was true for Tina, though. That made, oh, right, yes. right. that made me curious. I'm thinking, is there hairspray? Is there Aquanet on this doll? Yeah. <laughs> It's an accessory. It comes packed in. It's flammable. Yeah. I have to say, I mean, it's definitely Tina Turner-esque, but it needs a little more, you know, there was a certain little waviness or kinkiness in her hair that I'd like to see. But also her face isn't quite, like she needs more prominent cheekbones. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't. The hair and outfit do it more than the actual mold of the, of yes. the doll. You're right. Mm-hmm. I thought the same yeah. thing when I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you saw the doll without the clothing or the hair, you wouldn't go, aha, Tina Turner. I right, wouldn't necessarily. at all. You, just, yeah, you need the whole package. You think they were just taking another mold and just making it look more like our painting it differently? Well, it must be. It must be. I hope so. I hope that wasn't their final solution for Tina Turner building from scratch. So I, I'm thinking right. they probably repurposed it. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly hope not. And also, I mean, t- the thing about Tina Turner, that was um, one of the things that was unique about her is that she was older during the time that she was popular, mm-hmm. right? You know, in the eighties yeah. and so, and the doll, you know, she could be it, a 20 year old. It's a Barbie doll, right? <laughs> it Barbie has doll, Barbie yeah. proportions. It looks, yeah, you know, yeah. waifishly thin and the right, right, three clicks yeah. for the knees kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's going to be yeah, standard mold. The track, which this doll celebrates is this was the singer's first and only number one single. 
on the Which Billboard so 100. Really? When it was yes. released in so 1984. Huh. Of course, Turner took home three awards for the song at the 1985 Grammy Awards. It's so hard to believe it's her only number one, though. I feel like there had to have been something else. I was going to say, maybe more surprising is the fact that although she was entered into the, inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame with Ike Turner as a duo in 1991, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she was only inducted as a solo artist last year. A chill just ran up my back. I was afraid it was going to be time to play. How many number one hits? I'm like, oh no! Whew, See, that's why I had to tell John earlier there's not going to be any games. <laughs> I was wondering too. Because <laughs> Cat would win. It's music trivia, but oh, no. that sounds like a great game actually that I don't want to lose at, but I would play. Uh, if you want to get the doll too bad, you're too late. Oh. What? It was released on October 13th. Oh. But uh, when many fans rushed to buy the $55 doll online, wow. it had reportedly sold out in just a day. Seriously? Wow. That's going to be 100 plus on eBay. And I've got to tell you, so I, I went to see about buying one myself uh-huh. and uh, a link for the doll on Walmart came up. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to verify whether it was sold out, I, I clicked on the link mm-hmm. and it is out of stock at Walmart. And the description of the, bar- of the Barbie doll for Tina Turner is uh-huh. Barbie's signature Tina Turner doll in 90s fashion. What? Welcome to Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, in other 1980s news, last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments about mm. an Andy Warhol illustration of Prince, mm-hmm. you know, the purple one. Mm-hmm. which was based on a photograph by a photographer, Lynn Goldsmith. So the story goes, in 1981, Goldsmith, whose work as a rock and roll photographer included portraits of Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, Bruce Springsteen, and a number of different uh, other now music legends, was mm-hmm. assigned to shoot photos of Prince for Newsweek. Mm-hmm. Uh, her, the, the portraits ultimately were not published, but she kept them in her files. And three years later, so again, this is in the 1980s, after Purple Rain was released in 1984, Variety Fair wanted it an image of Prince to accompany an article that they were doing on him mm-hmm. called Purple Fame. It was to be mm-hmm. about his mega stardom. Mm-hmm. Um, so they commissioned Warhol to do an illustration. For $400, the magazine licensed Goldsmith's portrait of Prince as, as a, quote, artist reference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they agreed to credit her with the, sor- with the source f- photograph for the illustration. Mm-hmm. Warhol, as you know, he took you know, other images and mm-hmm. Warholized them. That mm-hmm. was his mm-hmm. whole thing, right? So yep. he took this photo and created a Prince series, 14 silkscreen prints, mm-hmm. two pencil drawings. One of the prints, quote, purple prints, was published alongside the article in Vanity Fair. Okay. That's without controversy. But when Prince died in 2016, Condé Nast wanted an image of him uh, for the cover of a single issue commemorative magazine called The Genius of Prince. So you've seen these at supermarkets mm-hmm. usually, right after right. somebody dies. They yes. had this thing ready to go. Yes. You know, someone's already written it. They're waiting for all these people to yep. you know, keel they've over. Got, they've got the death file. That's at every television station, radio station. They're like, yeah. every celebrity, we're ready when they go. Yeah. Wow. I never thought about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. So to, to, uh, for the cover of the magazine, they approached the Andy Warhol Foundation now which now holds the artist's copyright. Mm-hmm. And for $10,000, they licensed a different print from that series, the quote, orange prints. Mm. Remember purple, purple, uh, print, purple, what was it called? Purple prints? <laughs> the purple prints. Purple prints purple it was prints? a one-eyed, one-horned, flat purple prints. <laughs> I should have put purple prints in my teaser earlier. The purple mm. prince pricks. Prince. Pick, <laughs> purple prince picks. <laughs> All right, whatever. Uh, anyway, so they pay $10,000 for the orange prints this time. Mm-hmm. But this time the image is published without any credit or payment to Goldsmith, who okay. 
sees it for the first time <laughs> on a magazine cover, recognizes that her work claims copyright infringement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the Warhol Foundation uh, preemptively sues Goldsmith. Mm-hmm. They know she's going to probably sue them. And they just, it, really what happened, this is a, am I going to, if I'm getting to- Wait, uh, they sue know, her first? Yes. Preemptively? Wait, what? Yeah, so again, if what I'm getting to, uh, what's make? the word when you're esoteric? <laughs> if this is too esoteric, then, you know, just stop me. Hmm. But this is a concept in the law where you know you've got a, a, like a, a legal matter out there that's controversial hmm. in the sense, not controversial in the sense that it's, you know, titillating or, uh-huh. mm-hmm. but controversial in the sense that it's unsettled. Right. And at, that's a liability for you. Uh-huh. You can sue the person who you think might sue you just to get a judgment. Okay, that's- A declaratory hmm. judgment. Wow, what? <laughs> so you go to the court and say, look, I know this is, this is a problem. Just rule on it so we I can sleep at night. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> basically what it is. Right? <laughs> All right. So I know okay. I'm not going to get sued. I know, you know. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's what hmm. they did. And this went through, the first went through the lower courts, eventually reaching the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Mm-hmm who ruled in 2019 in favor of Andy Warhol. Okay. And then last year, the appellate court, which hears appeals mm-hmm. and is typically the last word in most of these cases, reversed that decision. So now they're siding with the photographer. Of course, look, you know, now Andy Warhol's not satisfied with that. So now it made it all its way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, like I mentioned, just heard mm-hmm. oral arguments on this last week. We don't know yet. Here's the arguments. In short, no, we don't know. No. We won't know for some time. Okay. As it usually works, the Supreme Court hears all these different cases, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they go in secret and mm-hmm. lately really fuck things up for everybody, <laughs> and then <laughs> let everybody mm-hmm. know how they made these crazy-ass decisions that are not actually based in law. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, that's just my little editorial. But anyway, that. so they heard the oral arguments, and here's the two sides. Andy Warhol says it's fair use. Kat, you'll remember we talked to mm-hmm. Professor K.J. Green about copyright issues, including fair use, uh, many episodes ago. But they're arguing it was fair use because it was, quote, transformative. That makes me think mm-hmm. of Weird Al, too. Remember when we talked okay. about Weird Al? Yeah. Like the parody mm-hmm. being, um, it's, right. it's, it's creating, it, mm-hmm. turning it into a whole different thing, a whole new entity. Okay, that's perfect that you bring that up because the last time the Supreme Court substantially addressed fair use mm-hmm. was in the similar context. It was the two live crew case oh. where they were ah. getting sued by Roy Orbison oh, or, 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 right. or Acuff Rose Music about Two Live Crew's parody of Oh, Pretty Woman. Okay. Another, mm-hmm. it was a 1989 song. Yeah, yeah. Which was based on Roy Orbison's rock ballad. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they just took the song and changed the words pretty much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the case that ultimately decided, no, parody can be fair use. Mm-hmm. There used to be this idea that if you have a parody, but you try to, or if you do something that otherwise would be fair use, but you try to make money off of it, it mm-hmm. can't be fair use. Okay. The court said, no, you can make money off of things that are fair use. Mm-hmm. And this is a pair, you know, and there's other reasons why this is still. Yeah. If it's safe. fair. It's fair. I mean, hmm. make up your mind. It's fair, but yeah, kind well, of not. Well, it, yeah. They're never going to make up their mind. I know. <laughs> but um, since, and it was deemed a parody because the court said, well, look, they're kind of making a com, a social commentary on this concept of pretty woman right. yeah. by having this other perspective of a different type of character than the one where Arberson was, mm-hmm. you know, embodying in his version of the song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's a real, this is a really scary case because, and again, I'm like, is this going on for too long? Should we just cut this whole story out? I think it's interesting. You can decide what to cut. John will decide. So, but, but yeah, so there's that one idea of a parody, right? Mm-hmm. And a parody being a way of transforming something. So now we get to this idea of something that, whether it's transformative or not, because that's another way that maybe something is safe is if you transform it enough. Mm-hmm. 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 Warhol says mm-hmm. that their work is transformative. That, get this. 
So if you see the, if you see these two images, mm -hmm. this is, I'll just act it out briefly here and we'll publish these pictures on, on our site. <laughs> Her, so his head, I should be descriptive for audio purposes. In <laughs> the, the photo, his head is kind of cocked to the side a little bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. And in the Warhol print, he's more up and down as you would be. Right. Warhol said, folks say, look, and his is a, a, a silk screen like Warhol did, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Warhol says, look, in that photograph, he is... You could see Prince as a vulnerable artist, as a human. That was the intent of that photo. Mm -hmm. When Andy did it, he, he silkscreened it. He made it just a one-dimensional flat image. In the Warhol one, he's up more upright and not, you know. So, so they're saying their work, the Warhol one, was transformative because there's a different intent, a different commentary, a different take on mm -hmm. Prince. I have right. a real love-hate relationship with copyright law. I mean, as a yeah. content creator, as we all are, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you want protected what you create, sure. yeah. but you yeah. also want what you protected to be seen and to influence people. Mm -hmm. Financial gain is part of why, is one reason why you can create, mm -hmm. but recognition and exposure and people getting in, in front of the stuff you create is part of it too. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Warhol definitely transformed that image. I looked at the pictures and it's obvious that it came from the original, but he mm -hmm. did his own spin on it. And plus he did the mosaic with, you know, Marilyn Monroe or mm -hmm. Campbell's mm -hmm. soup cans or whatever he does. Yeah. He's transformed it. He's taken the original mm -hmm. picture and inserted it into a larger piece. Now the, yeah. I can see the takeaway is that for the cover, they use just one of those little frames. Mm -hmm. But at that point, it's really fair use of Warhol's fair use of the thing. I don't think the original right. artist has that much to say because <laughs> you're pulling from what you're pulling an interpretation from another interpretation. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it just going to look, everybody can call claim to something if they work hard enough, but mm -hmm. at some point it's art. And unless you are overtly and blatantly stealing food from the mouth of the artist or claiming it was your original work, mm -hmm. I think it's, there's got to be, that's why it's a fuzzy line. Yeah, because they yeah. had to be judged. Like you said, Will, depends. In this case, I think, you know, a little touchy. I think it's the mm -hmm. original photographer created something great. But the fact that we're talking about it, people know that she did it. Yeah. At this point, yeah. it's it's five versions down from the original, I think. I think it's so interesting that this is coming up as an issue around Prince yep. as the subject, because wasn't mm -hmm. he notoriously very protective of yeah. Uh, yeah. of his work? And yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Right. Professor Green had told us about mm -hmm. that too. Mm -hmm. He was very litigious and he didn't want anybody sampling him. Right. Or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, John, the, the uh, folks have criticized. So your, your position is like Warhol's, but the opposite of the, you mm -hmm. know, the counter argument that um, the photographer is making and some other folks in support of her are making that it's a slippery slope mm -hmm. because if all you have to say is, look, mine is a different take. But the image otherwise is kind of, like you said, you could recognize the photo mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, wh where does it end? And one yeah. person pointed out, one attorney pointed out that, uh, could it be then a hollow? And, and, and the reason why it's so subjective to say my interpretation is different. Mm -hmm. And if all I have to do is say, well, I have a different interpretation. Right. Maybe it could, for other people's, uh, other people's analysis could be, it looks identical to me, but I could say, no, it's not though. No, and they well, said, well, but yeah. damn it, it's a slippery slope both directions, mm -hmm. right? It's a slippery slope to say, oh, too much fair use and I've lost control of my property. But yeah. you slide the other direction and you stifle creativity. Can no one be inspired by right. something else and use a piece of yes. it? Yeah, it's, it, it's, that's why I have such a love-hate relationship with yeah. all of copyright and fair use. One of my best friends from high school days is a patent and copyright attorney. Oh, wow. And he winces every time he sees a thumbnail I create or I, I borrow a font from something or I have an image. He's like, people are going to drag you through the mud and take you to court. I've not been sued yet because 
First, I ain't got much money to take. Secondarily, (laughs) I think most copyright holders recognize that Mm -hmm. that's exposure. Here's a content creator that's putting out something, Mm -hmm. recognizing us. And plus Mm -hmm. I cover a lot of retro stuff because- a lot of those people are dead probably, but who knows? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, Just, yeah. You know, John, yeah. you can sound smart to him now. Just say it's transformative. That's, That's right. what I say. That's right. But one extreme could be, could, you know, again, against what you're saying, John, is that in this example, in this uh, piece that I read was that could a Hollywood studio adapt a book and have a different take on the book and they don't have to pay the author, credit the author yeah. or anything. Is that, you know, what happens if the court rules in favor of Warhol? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, John, the other thing though is interesting to me is, so this raised the question for me is, well, how did Warhol get away with Campbell's soup and Marilyn Monroe? Yeah. And uh, was it uh, Brillo pads? He did all these different <laughs> things. And Coke digging, bottles. I had that. Digging into bottles. it is, yeah. it turns out that Campbell's loved what he did. So they never <laughs> sued him. In fact, at the time. So the uh, difference is if if yeah. the offended party enjoys your work. Is yeah. that the point? Well, that's part of it. Yeah, like you <laughs> said. Again, subjective. Well, subjective for them, though, mm-hmm. yeah. for the owner of the copyright. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, that's plenty of everything. That was 1980s news. Hurry, get it out. Let's play the music. <laughs> hey, our independent podcast is brought to you every week by folks just like you. So if you'd like to help us out, please follow us on the podcast platform you're listening to right now. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Share an episode on Facebook. All of these actions just take a moment and are 100% free. But if you'd like to chuck in a buck and help us keep publishing the show week after week, please visit us at 1980snow.com slash support to find out how you can send us a dollar or two. And thank you so much. It means a lot. Okay, so in just a few moments, I'm really excited again. We're going to speak with Paul Robb, singer, songwriter, producer. Mm -hmm. He helped create the sound of Information Society. One of my favorite groups from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, before that, though, we got to give away our Ralph Macchio book here. So, oh, yeah. uh, so we got everybody's uh, comments, everybody's uh-huh. name. That, everybody that entered a comment on social media, I got loaded mm-hmm. up into this thing that's randomly going to pick somebody All right. and let it do its thing. Uh-huh. And the winner is John Aquavita. Nice. Congratulations, John. We'll reach out to find the best way to get Ralph Macchio's new book, Waxing on the Karate Kid and Me sent out to you. And for those of you who didn't win, uh, thanks for participating. You can still get your hands on a copy of the book. It's available everywhere books are sold. And we encourage you to check out bookshop.org to order your copy. You know, I was thinking, okay, so first off, you guys may not be as familiar with Information Society as I am. I and I get that. I'm not. Yeah. And the reason why is because, look, I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, right outside of, you know, New York. Mm-hmm. I was a DJ throughout mm-hmm. the 1980s. Mm-hmm. As I told you before, getting music to be a DJ, even as young as I was, was f- older friends that went to clubs and found out this was hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, and my one friend would just go to the DJ, what is this? What's hot? <laughs> you know, and he'd find out, you know. Mm-hmm. Or we'd go to record stores, you know, in New York or, you know, in other cities around us in, in New Jersey and just ask the person there who's usually a DJ too. Mm-hmm. And they often they had right. turntables and they'd say, it's this. And they'd put it down Ooh. and then we'd get what they wanted. So one mm-hmm. of those records, it turns out, was running a record that uh, Information Society had recorded independently. Mm-hmm. And I think they didn't even know this at the time because they were from Minneapolis. It became a huge club hit. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> So they weren't aware that the single for this record was being, you know. Wait, they didn't know? No, they didn't realize at first. Well, pre-internet, right? It's not like you have club charts, right? You have radio charts. And so if you're hitting the club and, you know, 
yeah. in some backwater area like New Jersey, then you know, how are you going to hear about oh, it? Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. About South Jersey. Got him. <laughs> Central slash South Jersey. Yes, I agree. Oh, oh. Not Northeast. Refer back oh. to our previous episode with, uh, <laughs> with, Jim. with Jim of the Smithereens. <laughs> so, so yeah, and I think as the story goes, and maybe I'll get a chance to, talk, maybe we'll get a chance to talk to Paul about this, but um, mm-hmm. ultimately they get contacted by a club owner, you know, promoter that says, can you come perform your music here? Like, why? <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's so great. You know who our band is, right? <laughs> Pleasantly surprised, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, later on this, so they, they record this independently. Later on, it gets picked up by Tommy Boy, who remixes it, just the single. Huh. Uh, at the time, Tommy Boy's an imprint of Warner Brothers. I don't think they are anymore. Okay. And this, it became even more of a hit and eventually oh, reached number two on the dance club uh, charts. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tommy Boy, by the way, had a lot of, uh, you know, iconic 1980s music, Africa Bambada, So Sonic Force, That's a Sonic, a lot of hip hop and a lot of electro hip hop, uh, Digital Underground, De La Soul. Yeah, De La Soul. Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. us talking about that. Yeah. Anyway, so eventually mm-hmm. Tommy Boy signs them to a record deal. Uh, in 1986 and in 1988 their self-titled album explodes onto the charts on the strength of its lead single what's on your mind mm-hmm. i want to know i'm gonna what sing you it. Is that the one? It on youtube yeah i forgot to research something can- yes yep wow uh, okay. so youtube won't uh, mute it but <laughs> the we're not singing accurately enough that YouTube is yes, going to catch no. that. Yeah, Don't yeah, you yeah, worry. Yeah, yeah. It's fair use, but no, but it's fair use, but YouTube uh, does not care. Oh, yeah. The way I'm singing it is transformative. YouTube. <laughs> Listen, <up. laughs> transforming it into garbage. It's correct. That's accurate. Um, the parenthetical for the song, what's on your mind is pure energy. All right. Pure energy. Wow. John knows the song. I know my information society. I'm on impressed now. too. Okay. And right. Well, so then maybe I don't even have to tell the rest of this, but oh, no. keep doing it. When they, ori- when they originally made the record, their their demo version of it before Tommy Boy got involved, mm-hmm. it was very different than the radio you heard the song you heard on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was you know as they talk about it, it was a little rougher, it was a little more simpler, it sounded very indie. Mm-hmm. Warner Brothers says, "Hey, Warner Brothers slash Tommy Boy says, "Hey, we got to get you like a real producer. Come out of Minneapolis, come to New York City, and we'll hook you up with some of them." They hook them up with Fred Marr, who is a guy who did. Scritty Politti, who oh. worked with craft work. Oh. Um, and so nice. when they get together now to really craft this song, it eventually, you know, becomes this, the, the hit that we know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. one of the things that really, again, what? I know where you're going. You do? Go ahead. Okay. I'm gonna you going to remember now. Now you're getting No, it. no, I don't think I remember it. I don't know where you're going. Go for it. Okay. One of the things that they did, though, to give it the iconic sound that it ultimately had was rely on something that Kurt, the lead singer, uh, Kurt Larson, had prepared for it years earlier because hmm? in, in the, in the mid 1980s uh, he had been recording uh, audio from television shows <laughs> from his TV straight to his cassette deck. Yep. Okay. Um, and he knew one day he'd use it for something for music, yep. but he wasn't sure. So when they got a sampler, he started loading these in these sounds in, but again, they hadn't have a place for them. So, when they're working on refining what's on your mind and finishing this, their first, you know, uh, eponymous mm-hmm. album, uh-huh. he suddenly remembers, I've got these, you know, snippets of these different shows, including several from his favorite TV show, Star, Star Trek. Trek. Yes. So fortunately, neither Desilu nor Leonard Nimoy was upset about the fair use of pure well, energy. 
you know, that's a perfect story. But, you know, okay, let's, let me play you the clip of, so I Do just it. put together a little Do mix it. of just the samples. Yep. I'm really glad this isn't a game. <laughs> yeah, no, I was thinking, could John identify quotes from Star Trek, the original series? No, yes. John, I was never going down that path. Okay. That would be- It depends. Like, what do you want to know? The actor or the episode? It's like, depends. Oh, okay. How deep is the cut? Right. What color right. tunic was he wearing when he said this? All right. So here oh is, my. this is just a little snippet <laughs> oh of a few of the samples they used from two of their songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, including What's On Your Mind and Walking Away. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. Pure So just in that small clip, you've got uh, snippets mm-hmm. from uh, Leonard Nimoy's Spock. Mm-hmm. You've got William Shatner as Kirk, mm-hmm. DeForest, DeForest Kelly, Kelly as McCoy. Yep. Mm-hmm. And did I hear Nomad the, in there? Did I hear Nomad? I thought it did. No, not no. that. Okay. No. All right. There is a that's song good. where they, what that that's from what, Changeling? Yep, exactly. Nomad and Changeling? Mm-hmm. That's, they actually do sample Nomad in a different song. Destroy. Um, but they <laughs> do, yeah, they do modify the voices a little bit. So it does sound a little bit unlike the actual actors. Okay. Um, but also Scotty's in there. James Doohan's in there too as well. Oh. Um, so the song eventually reaches number one and uh, on the Dance Music Club play charts and number mm-hmm. three on the US uh, Hot 100. Mm-hmm. But the band doesn't stop with just using it in the, the two songs I played. They also included uh, samples in songs throughout that, I guess, again, their first you know album with Warner Brothers, Over the Sea, Something in the Air, these other songs include clips from these episodes, which are among them, Mirror, Mirror, Wolf in the Fold, Changeling. Uh, what mm-hmm. else? I Mud is in there. Mm-hmm. Right. And since then, on other albums since, they've used Star Trek in a number of different records as well. Cool. But, oh, wow. and, oh, and so I do have, here is, here is uh, just small clips of where those original audios came from, from the various uh, shows here that I mentioned. Fascinating. Pure energy. Pure thought. Totally incorporeal. A trigger relay is now in operation. Any attempts to alter course will result in the immediate destruction of this vessel. I have the leader of the Hulk and Council waiting on Channel B. It is useless to resist us. We do not resist you. Mr. Spock, I know a cafe where the women are so... I know the place, Jim. Let's go see. You gentlemen, in your condition, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> That's a fun episode. Mm. Uh, yeah, Scotty's super excited about going to that, uh, like, pleasure planet. Yes. Some R&R. Let's go see. <laughs> uh, with regard to how they could do this, you're right, John. You, look, this ties directly to what we were talking about. So this is the era of the late 1980s where mm-hmm. it's still the Wild West as far as mm-hmm. copyright go. Folks mm-hmm. aren't sure what they can and cannot do. Yeah. We're still going to have Paul's Boutique in 89. Yeah. You're still going to have the Cactus album from Third Base. Records that sampled and maybe didn't actually get the licenses or pay for them. Mm-hmm. Songs that couldn't be made today. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in 1988, because folks are starting to get wind of this idea that maybe we can't just use whatever we want. Mm-hmm. One of the execs at Warner Brothers hears their music that this album is creating and it's like, holy shit, wait a second. You've got Paramount IP like all over this album. Yeah, mm. yeah. We have to get them to give us permission. <laughs> Let's offer them some money and get clearance. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And mm-hmm. for, uh, according to uh, Kurt, 
the the album languishes for about nine months as a result. Oh of this. wow! It goes nowhere. Okay. They don't know what to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what what happens ultimately is just by bizarre you know happenstance or maybe exactly how it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Their rep at Warner Brothers, Kevin Laffey, was friends with Adam Nimoy. Ah. Leonard's son. The son of mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy. Oh my goodness. Who happened at the time was a business lawyer, a music business lawyer in Los Angeles. Okay. Mm. So the rep calls up Adam and says, can you help? Can you talk to your dad? <laughs> Does he have Paul at the company at Paramount? <laughs> wow. And Adam, who at the time was having, a, according to Kurt, was having a difficult relationship with his father, uh. still reached out to him anyway and said, can you help me with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and he just explained what I need you to, he said, this is what I need you to say. Here's the music. Here's the clips we need. They'll give you money. There's nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. And Leonard took it to to uh, Paramount and and asked them, and they cleared it. Wow! And so that's how the album the album was cleared to come out. How about that? What's interesting cool. is Kurt in the band, and this has been like uh, in sock mythology for years. Uh-huh. You've heard this story, never knowing it was true. Uh-huh. It turns out that the band didn't know if it was true either. <laughs> they thought maybe someone was exaggerating to make it sound, you know, right. uh, sort of, you know, more grandiose than right. it was. More the interesting. Had. Right. Mm-hmm. Then I got to hear it, right? Because it's, there's a backstory, but there really was. <laughs> As Kurt explains it, 15 years later, he's lucky enough to meet Leonard Nimoy in San Francisco uh-huh. because mm-hmm. he's there promoting his photography book. Kurt says he gets to talk to him for about a half an hour because surprisingly, as Kurt puts it, there's no one else there. Oh, mm. Um, and he says, hey, I've got to know. I've always, is it true? What you're thinking? I've been Tell told what's this. On your I've got to know what you're thinking. <laughs> I've been told this story that you did this thing for our album and I'm wondering oh. if it's true. And he said he thought, uh, Leonard thought about it for a minute and said, oh yes, I do recall that. Adam brought that to me. Did the album ever come out? (laughs) (laughs) Big, big fan. Big, big fan. So, (laughs) you know, look, hey, I don't know that he's in their demo necessarily, but you know. (laughs) Ultimately, the album does come out, spawns a number of hits Mm -hmm. and has been certified gold. Nice. All right. Hey, with all of that, uh, we'll be back in just a moment when we're joined by our guest, Paul Robb. Our guest today is the singer, songwriter, and composer who, in 1982, along with Kurt Larson and James Cassidy, founded the influential synth-pop group Information Society. In 1988, their band's self-titled album raced up the U.S. Billboard 200, where it peaked at number 25 and was certified gold. But even before their ubiquitous hits, including What's On Your Mind?, and walking away filled the airwaves. Their unique combination of electronic music and vocals had already begun to define the sound of dance music that ultimately dominated the clubs. In 2021, our guest and his bandmates released a new album, Oddfellows, which sounds both as contemporary as any dance music today and reminiscent of the sound they helped popularize in the 1980s. Hey, please welcome to the show, Paul Robb. Uh, happy to be here. It is, I am thrilled to speak with you. I've long wanted to speak with you probably since I started doing this show and because I'm a fan 
And, and I'm a fan of, uh, I'm a genuine fan back from the 1980s because on, for a number of reasons. One, because I was into electronic music, because I was an aspiring composer and I had my little Casio keyboard. And because I was a DJ throughout the 1980s too, as a young person in the early, earlier 1980s, I was really ambitious. And I think at 12 or 11 years old, I started DJing. And so when your music started to break, I was already, you know, playing it at parties and uh, dances and clubs. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, I've heard you talk about some of your early influences and quite honestly, I don't know what, what's the word for discriminating against people who are not from the East coast. I, I don't know if there's an ism for that or ist for that, but you know, thinking about all the great bands that came out of, uh, Minneapolis, you cite instead these European groups like Kraftwerk and, uh, uh Daniel, uh, the normal and yeah. uh, fad gadget. And yeah. my first thought was how does someone in Minnesota even find out about those groups? Well, it's a good question. And you know, there are certain, it's a certain, there are, there is a certain type of person who, who uh, well, I mean, I should back up and say that back in the day um, when, when, when we were young and influenced uh, and, and spun, you know, cultural sponges, we didn't want to, to, we didn't want to have anything to do with what, what, what surrounded us in the, in the milieu that we grew up in. We wanted to be different from that. And we wanted to hear different things from that. And, you know, luckily in the 80s, and, and this was a, 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 you know, a residue from the 70s, I guess, maybe even the late 60s, but there were a whole uh, network of, of independent record stores. Sure. And, and these record stores made it their business to import uh, a lot of weird stuff from Europe and sometimes Asia, but mostly from Europe. And, um, and that was why you would go to these stores. And, you know, I remember... Uh, the first time I was exposed to uh, DAF, which was another one of our big early influences, um, I, you know, I was just flipping through the 12 inches and I, and I said to the clerk, you know, what, what's, what is this? And he said, oh, it's, it sounds a lot like, you know, uh, th that fascist groove thing, which was funny for two reasons. Number one, and I was like, oh, cool. Oh, so number Fascism, one. Cool. I didn't know what that fascist groove oh. thing was. It was an anti-fascist song by, sure. by uh, Heaven 17. Uh, and then secondly, you know, DAF was probably one of those first sort of industrial bands in Europe that kind of parodied fascism in their, in their imagery and, and, uh, and their sound and their presentation. And, but, you know, in those days, um, you know, we talk about cura curation being the, the valuable uh, uh, commodity these days, as opposed mm -hmm. to creation, because there's so much material out there. You need someone to curate it for you. But back in the day, curation was just as important. It's just that it was different people doing it. And, and when I was a young lad, the curators were two groups of people, the DJs at the club mm -hmm. and the clerks at the record stores. Right. Yeah. And, and what, what filtered to us, wasn't strictly European, um, you know, like Soul Sonic Force mm. and the B-52s and the Residents and Devo. You know, those were all American sure. uh, uh, bands and, and, you know, very American in their approach to things. But what they shared with the, the European influences that we had is that they were not Journey. And they were not REO Speedwagon or ACDC. They were something new. And um, we ate it all up. We, we ingested it all. Right. 
That's interesting. I'm trying to think like when I was in college in the later eighties, uh, thinking about, um, what was our, you know, how did we rebel? It wasn't, it, 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 well, it was grunge. It was, it was what yeah. came called alternative, yeah. which to us seemed like just sort of a rerun of corporate rock right. but with, with different clothing <laughs> attached yeah. to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And instead of recording in garages, now they were actually in studios. So things yeah. even sound right. better. Yeah. Yeah. It was like arena, uh, you know, arena garage rock. Yeah. So, you know, when you first start creating this music and you've got some of these uh, styles and other artists that you want to emulate, how is it that you're able to do it? I think now how democratized music production is, you know, for free, you could get something on your iPad, but then you needed components and synthesizers and real physical gear. And at the time it's pretty expensive. It was expensive and it was, uh, extremely hard to work with. And uh, it was always exploding in various ways. <laughs> Sometimes literally, you mean? Well, I mean, <laughs> we had, I, I can remember one period where we were, um, this was long pre-MIDI. MIDI didn't exist. MIDI mm. being a, a, a way for synthesizers to communicate to each other. But you could still do certain things where you could link the, the drum machines and the synthesizers together. And we had a particular synth called the Moog Source. Mm. And it had a connection that allowed it to send clock information to control the tempo. Sure. You know, and you, so you could play sequences together with a drum machine. But every so often, like every fourth or fifth time, it would send out a tempo that was something like 10,000 times faster than the actual tempo you were trying to set. And, you know, that happened to us many times on stage. We had to retune our oh, synths wow. mostly between every, every single song. Um, we had, we used sequencers where you manually entered on buttons what the sequence was going to be. We had to, and they, they didn't have memory, so it could hold one sequence. And if you wanted a different sequence, oh, yeah. you had to enter it. <laughs> and we had to do those things between songs. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, our early uh, performances were, were mayhem, yeah. but in a good way. You know, I, I, I've often said, um, that we, in our early years, we were a punk band, mm. uh, despite the fact that we didn't wear flannel shirts and we didn't play guitars, but in every other functional way that defined the punk movement, we, we really fit in. We were all about do, DIY right. uh, and we were all about sort of, um, uh, you know, looking down on, on technique we just felt like we didn't, we didn't need to know how to play instruments. That wasn't the, the crux of emotion and music. And we were all about confronting the audience and breaking the fourth wall and all those things. Um, and so the, the mayhem that happened as a result of technical limitations was just all part of the, uh, the aesthetic. Wow. I never would have thought about that that way. And folks probably, and folks couldn't have appreciated how organic your performances were at that point. Well, some people did. It was a, what was the term from Spinal Tap? Uh, our, our, our appeal was more selective. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point though, you so you're working with this gear. What is your musical training at that point? Is it just doing your 10,000 hours and absorbing these records and stuff you like? Or yeah, you pretty much. I mean, we all had musical backgrounds, but they were just a, a mishmash. Uh, I played saxophone in high school band and my background was mostly jazz music and funk music. James Cassidy, our bass player, was a veteran of a number of heavy metal bands. Hmm. He played in a Kiss cover band and a Black Sabbath cover band. Hmm. Uh, and Kurt was just a choir boy, literally a choir boy. 
and so, you know, that was the, that's what we brought to the project, con, wow. you know, uh, collectively. It reminds me of a little bit of the, you know, sort of the diversity of uh, Duran Duran in that sense, that that magic of, you know, was it Nick Rhodes that knew all the technology and you've got, uh, you know, Andy had his, had the rock edge and just a fusion of those different talents that created something different and other than yeah. their different sources. Well, and speaking of um, influences, I can remember in the summer of 1984, I had a job working in a parking lot hmm. and uh, I was sitting in the tin shack and it was about 110 degrees all summer. And Duran uh, Duran had several hits that year. I'm not sure what they were, but you know, hungry like the wolf yeah, or whatever. It's probably Rio, and, the album Rio. Yeah. Rio, yeah. And I, I just kind of absorbed their, uh, just studied their vocal harmonies. Mm. Uh, you know, I didn't necessarily uh, get excited by their instrumentation because I felt like it was a little bit too sort of uh, mainstream for us. But I, I did like their vocal harmonies and their their ability to write a hook. Right. And so that was me sitting in a tin shack in the middle of a, of a asphalt parking lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> listening to Duran Duran for get some tips about vocal harmonies. That's interesting because in, in, uh, similarly also it's, you know, the lyrics that you ultimately develop for the songs are, I want to say they didn't seem uh, contrived or commercial in the sense that was popular a lot at the time, much like Duran Duran, where it was more from the heart in poetry than, you know. Yeah. Well, this is something that that's, it's difficult to explain to people who didn't live through punk and new wave, mm -hmm. particularly new wave, but you know, uh, and also it's, it's difficult for people to believe about us who only know us because of our pop music. But back in the day, back in those days, our goal along with our, with our idols um, was to write songs that weren't about anything in particular. Mm. The idea was to write lyrics that had as little to little content as possible. Mm. You know, I mean, I was listening to, to Grace Jones and to, you know, like Daniel Miller uh, type acts from mute and, and all this early, very early, you know, it was, it was before there was, you know, anything called techno or, or synth pop, they, you know, sure. people tried to use the term machine rock. And, and, you know, the idea was to cut the, the, the music was thought to be inhuman and, mm. and the um, lyrics were the, the, the aspiration for the lyrics was to be about as little as possible. Wow. You know, I think that's why we covered, there was a movie that was extreme, a terrible movie, a God awful movie that cannot be rewatched. And I don't recommend anybody watch it, okay. but there was a movie in its aesthetics that was so incredibly influential called liquid sky. Oh, okay. And, hmm. and I mean, if you're an aficionado, yeah, you, you need to watch liquid sky. Sure. But there's a performance, there's a song in that movie called Me and My Rhythm Box. And it, it, to me, it epitomizes what we were going for in the early years of the band, which mm. was this kind of robotic, mm. you know, beyond craft work. It was like, like you know, craft work with, with you know, throw in some, some uh, you know, 
sexual fetishes and and some some you know psychological problems and and that's that's what we were that's what we were aiming for in the early years the early years yeah certainly it becomes something different but but before we get there um you know the story of uh running in particular reminds me of that uh, i want to say it's like a, a tale that's in some managerial book that you get you know if you're going to manage an office you know tell your employees this thing about stopping six feet short of gold the idea that, you know, you didn't realize what you were just about to about to score big and you stopped right before running blows up in the clubs. The band has disbanded. Yeah, um, that's true. As a matter of fact, it happened before running. Uh, when when I initially recorded running, the band had already broken up. Uh, <laughs> James had gone off to Seattle uh, to find himself and Kurt had gone off to Vienna, Austria to find himself. And um, I tried to kind of recreate or resurrect the band with with some new people. And one of those new people was Murat Konar, who was a software engineer, but wanted to also be in a band at at night. And, um, you know, and and his and his brother, we kind of first his his brother, Mita, was in the band. And then when Mita didn't work out and I called Murat and asked him if he wanted to be our singer. And uh, he brought the song running with him. And, um, he, uh, I remember hearing, I remembered somebody's advice to me about production. He was listening to some of my demos and someone said, I've always read that it's best to put the kick drum and the bass line together. Right. Mm-hmm. So they hit together. And that was, you know, news to me. I didn't have any kind of principle like that, but that's what I chose to do when I was starting to, to produce running and, and create that sound that, that's, uh, that running oh, yeah. creates. And, um, it, it, I, I must say that it worked. Iconic. Yes. And then as, when running broke, when it started getting popular, suddenly all the, the rats came back to the, yeah. The, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so is it that they, you had tried long enough and you thought, what are we really doing with this? I got to get Pretty a real much. job, but then, yeah. Oh, there's, there's potential for this dream. Let's get back together. Yeah. Well, and it was our, it was, what happened was that it was the, uh, transformation of, of, uh, from Insoc, the local art, you know, confrontational Dada electronic <laughs> music project right. to information society, the potential pop band. Mm. And it was, you know, that, um, that dynamic or the, the, the dissonance between those two things, um, you know, in the project lasts up until this day, you know, Kurt Larson, our singer would still, uh, you know, aside from all the things that he's gained from being in the band, aesthetically, he would still rather be the, the, the local artsy Mm. confrontational, uh, avant-garde electronic act. Mm. It's interesting to tell that story about, uh, when the band split up and you're, you're Marat's a software engineer. And I remember this, I don't, I don't remember where I got this from a magazine or some kind of folklore surrounding the band. And it probably wasn't a story that came out till uh, I want to say your first, uh, you know, album with uh, Tommy boy, mm-hmm. but that this band is all nerds and computer geeks and they have office jobs. And I remember me and my friends feeling like they're us, like this is the first <laughs> representation of us in music. You know, we're not rockers. We're not punk rockers. We're never going to do that, but we could program a synth. Uh, and maybe that was part of the origins of that story because, uh, you know, again, I don't, I, that's something that stayed with me for, you know, 40 years now or 35 years. It's it's absolutely true. And I mean, it just, that's kind of ties in with what I was saying about, you know, the punk aesthetic It's like, 
you know, there are multiple ways to rock out and, and they don't always involve long hair and, and a six strings on a, on a guitar fretboard, you know, and that's what Kraftwerk taught us all, you know, they're the, 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 the godfathers of, of us all. Right. And, um, that's, you know, I remember, uh, uh, the first time, literally the a revolution in my thinking, I saw the, the first time I saw a Kraftwerk album was when I was in 10th grade mm. and it was, um, the man machine. It was the famous picture of them in their red shirts with the lipstick and everything. Right. And I remember, and I was listening to jazz and, you know, like prog rock at that point. And I remember looking at that album cover saying, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Look at those freaks. Yeah. And by the next summer, when their next record came out, man, Mich or, uh, uh, trans Europe, I just, it was like, I was their number one fan. It was yeah. like, they were my Holy grail. Yes. And so, you know, between them and Gary Newman, that's, that's kind of what, what sold me on electronic music as a, as a viable, uh, path. That's interesting that uh, I, I interviewed Sir Mix-a-Lot, uh, I don't know, several months ago at this point. And the two groups he cited as his major influences were Kraftwerk and Gary Newman. And he mm. said, Gary, he said everything but cars. He said, take cars out, everything yeah. else, the dark, yeah. more synthy stuff. It's, I think that might say everything you need to know about 80s music that, you know, an iconic hip hop group and an iconic, you know, pop group could have the same origins. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, no, it's no coincidence. And, and that was the magic of the 80s. Well, you know, after we all moved to New York, um, everybody who lives in New York thinks that their time in New York was the golden age. You know, <laughs> I when we moved there, everyone was like, oh, you should have been here back in the, you know, whenever, yeah. you know, but, but, um, you know, the clubs that we went to and the shows that we went to were completely um, free form in terms of what kind of acts were playing there, what kind of music that they played. There was no delineation between hip hop and electro pop and synth pop and, and Latin music. Right. And it was all, all one and the same. Yeah. And, you know, we played many, many shows with, with uh, hip hop acts and we influenced and were influenced by uh, a lot of New York based hip hop acts. You know, obviously if you, if you know anything about the history of, Tommy Boy Records, you know that um, Planet Rock was 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 there. You know that's what put them on the map. Sure. And Bambata basically ripped off uh, Numbers by Kraftwerk, <laughs> and for Running, we basically ripped off Bambata uh, and and sang over it instead of rapped over it. Yeah. And you know I can't tell you how many famous uh, rappers have come up to us at, you know, oldies shows or, or whatever and say, Oh, you were a huge influence on me back in the day. Wow. Like, like we were in Texas a couple of years ago and fat Joe, remember fat Joe oh, from, yeah. from the O's? I mean, he's a still, you know, like a cultural icon at this point. And he was like, back, yeah, yo, yo, running was my jam, you know, back yeah. in the day. And I can't tell you how important that song was to me. And we've, you know, I, we've heard that many, many times. And, Culturally, we don't have anything to do with them, but you know, when it comes to to the dance floor or being in the clubs, we're all we were all on the same page at that time. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of the you know noticing some of the sounds, even looking listening, and, and everybody should, people should know. I think your entire catalog is available on your Bandcamp site now. It seems like well, except for the three uh, Warner Brothers albums. Oh, okay. Oh. Well, there you go. Well, yeah, yeah. And folks can find them. But my point being that some of the older stuff, if you listen to like uh, going all the way back to as a creatures of uh, influence, mm -hmm. 
some of the techniques you use on there are, you know, techniques that are then become common later in the decade in freestyle music and hip hop music. And, um, it's, it's pretty cool to hear that, you know, those connections. Well, and going back to your, to your question about, you know, how were we, you know, how did we even get these ideas? It was, you know, we weren't, uh, you know, our, uh, involvement in freestyle was not organic. We weren't, we didn't grow up in the Bronx. We were in right. Puerto Rican, but we were exposed to those records. Right. And, you know, because of the, because of the brilliance of, of the buyers from the independent record stores that we went to in Minneapolis. Right. Yeah, and it is interesting, you know, you're talking about running, uh, you know, and then obviously that's what gets you your single with Tommy Boy, which leads to your record deal with Tommy Boy, which again is part of Warner Brothers at that time. So many of the dance club songs that, that in that era, uh, and some of them on Tommy Boy, like TKA, but um, Noel, um, Trenier, the, 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 again, they're singing about the heartbreak of romance, which is really curious to me because so much of the songs on the radio at the time are about, you know, how great it is to be in love, Whitney Houston and yeah. so on and so forth. You go to the club and it's like, you know, I found, I caught you cheating on me. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, someone once described our, most of our uh, best songs as feeling good about feeling bad. <laughs> You know, yeah, uh-huh. and uh, you know, it's that's a that's a a viable strain of of popular music. Yeah, you know. So when you get your record deal with Warner Brothers, and my understanding is, look, you had been used to producing your records, you know, back home in in Minneapolis. Warner Brothers says, "Hey, you guys need a producer. Get your asses over here to New York City. We're going to hook you up with somebody." They hook you up with Fred Marr, who I don't know a year earlier or around that time produced, I don't know, it's like, it's like Kraftwerk's ninth album. Well, he was brought in. Um, one of the things that sold him, uh, sold us on him was that he was involved in electric cafe. Right. He did not produce it, but okay. um, he was, he helped with their uh, programming and their drum program. He was a, he was a, a technical boffin. Um, and, but, but also he was just a ferocious musician. He played with Scritti Politti. Mm. And before that, he was with a group called Material in New York, which was one of those downtown groups that was nobody knows about anymore, but they were hugely influential. Bill Laswell uh, and, and Fred and uh, uh, Robert uh, Quine. Um, and so, he, you know, he brought that kind of downtown legitimacy uh, with him. And um, yeah, we hit it off. I, you know, he's one of the unsung heroes uh, of that first album. We never, we never would have been able to make anything like that without our collaboration with Fred. Uh, he brought a professionalism, uh, that we completely lacked. Um, and, and then, you know, our, our mix engineer, Roy Shamir, um, brought a whole other level of sort of street cred to, to the mixes. Um, and, uh, you know, people like little Louis Vega, um, you know, brought even more, uh, cred to the, to the process in terms of remixes. So it was definitely not a, you know, an immaculate conception. We relied and and benefited from, uh, the, the skills of a lot of people on that record. So information society, your first album comes out, it's huge. I mean, it goes gold pretty quickly within just a few months, you know, uh, I guess largely bolstered by what's on your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, which goes, which is number one on the U S dance music club play chart and number three on billboard. Are you guys just 
over the moon suddenly that look for us, it look, most folks don't appreciate the amount of hours you've spent getting to that point. So for my, for me, it's easy to say, you know, one day you were, uh, you know, still toiling away and the next day you're a big stars, but is it, is it just, uh, I guess mind sort of a mind blowing or surreal experience to suddenly be ubiquitous? I mean, it's kind of the classic, classic rock and roll story, but you're right. You know, that overnight success, uh, came after five years of toiling in the, in the, you know, salt mines. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, and it, yeah, it did go gold very quickly, but it would have gone platinum if the record company had pressed more <laughs> albums. That was our complaint at the oh. time. Hmm. So we would go to in-store appearances and there would be a line around the block of people who wanted to, you know, take their picture with us and get a signed album. And there were no albums in the oh, store. Boy. Wow. So that was, uh, you know, kind of the story of our career, actually. We, we coined this term info luck, like <laughs> everything, you know, everything that bad that can go wrong oh. definitely happened to us. Mm. But yeah, it was, it was uh, a level of success that we were not at all uh, accustomed to. And also we were so headstrong that it was very difficult to manage us. Mm. Like, you know, we, we wouldn't let anyone style us you know, in terms of hair and clothing. So like, oh. if you look at those early videos, we're, we're wearing only what we wanted to wear. And like, you know, they would bring in choreographers and stylists and stuff. <laughs> we, were just, we were just such little, little prima donnas uh, about it all. Um, but, you know, you need that confidence to, to, to get to, to that point in the first place. And I think that, you know, for us, it was like a roller coaster ride and, um, you can enjoy it or you can not enjoy it as the case may be, but to have a, a really long-term career, you need to learn how to take control of that roller coaster and, and, and steer it for yourself. Right. And that's something that we did not learn to I, do. I would never would have guessed the thing about the styling because you had such a particular look. I would have guessed that somebody worked with you. Obviously you had uh, directors and producers when you did the music videos, which, you know, helped yeah. define what you guys look yeah. like, but you each had such an individual seeming style already. I would have thought, Somebody sat, sat you down and you know, came no, up with these characters. Not at all. Not at all. And, and we, you know, the funny thing is we just, uh, it was just nonstop fighting among, among the band members. You know, I mean, sometimes we'd do a photo shoot and we would let the people, you know, they would bring in the wardrobe and we would choose what we wanted and, you know, they would do our hair and stuff like that. But um, like, if you look at that first video for what's on your mind that we wore basically just what we were already wearing, mm. uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and you know, it would kind of go back and forth, but yeah, we were extremely stubborn and, and parochial about, about those, (laughs) about those kind of things, which, you know, it's great because we never sold out. We never became wishy-washy and, you know, but, uh, but it kind of, I think limited the, the upside potential of, of the group. And where did the faux Raptor, is that what you call them? The faux Raptor glasses you had those? Uh, oh um, yeah. On heck. Um, you know, that's a, that's a perfect example. I was, uh, I was walking by, uh, by the window. Uh, I lived on 21st street, New York in, in uh, Stuyvesant town. And I was walking down third Avenue and I saw a, um, uh, an optometrist shop and they had a pair of those in the, in the window. And I just, and this is how cocky I was. I just went in there and said, I want to buy those. <laughs> And the, the guy was like, uh, okay, $500 or, or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where they came from. 
Wow. I, you know, I, think so, I, still have those, yeah. I, I was so envious. I wanted those. And I thought for sure, I didn't, I only re- recently learned that, you know, they actually sell them as glasses for whatever purposes. Some, I don't know why at home you'd need to do that or walking around. You totally wouldn't. But, no. um, but they still sell them. Now they sell them and get them on Amazon, but. Probably. And I had, I had custom lenses ground oh, you for did? that. Okay. Mirror lenses. And, you know, those were the early version of, of the machine where they, they click in the different lenses right. to get your prescription. So part of what we talk about on our show is how influential the 1980s and synthwave, let's say as that category, I don't know that I'd say in, in, in information society is synthwave. Information society is really sort of, you know, uh, exceeds the bounds of any particular genre because it's, it's, you know, sort of a Venn diagram of so many different right. things. It's, it's sound, yeah. but synthwave itself is, seems to be as popular now, at least, you know, the things that I follow Kids today are, are, are writing music that was popular back in the 1980s. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and when I think about trends in musical, in pop music, um, I think that, that what, what you don't think about is the, intu- the two most important factors behind the scenes are, A, uh, the business side of the music business, and B, the technological uh, developments. Mm. And there's, there's not a single um, musical genre from past 50 years that you can name to me where I can't tell you what technological uh, development led to it mm. okay. or what it was a backlash against. Right. Um, and similarly, in terms of the business side of the music business, not necessarily the eighties, but I'd say up until the mid nineties was, was the last time that, you know, major labels owned the music business and still uh, had this business model of signing an act and working with them over time to develop uh, um, as, as artists. Right. And that, you know, that, that model and, and I think that's one of the reasons the eighties still lives in, uh, you know, iconographically in people's minds mm. as the last hurrah of memorable pop music acts. Um, because weirdos were given the resources to, to develop their, their weird visions. Mm. Uh, and after that, you know, things splintered to the, to the point where there were so many micro genres and, um, you know, there were, there was a whole raft of indie scenes, but in terms of national exposure, it was like do or die. You know, you had one shot and if you didn't make it with that shot, you were like, you were out of there. And that wasn't the way it was in the seventies and the eighties and the Mm. early part of the nineties. And uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons that those, those years are still thought of as kind of the peak of, of, you know, like if you're a rocker, um, the seventies, nothing, nothing beats the seventies. And it was the peak of, of album, you know, album oriented rock music. And, you know, for everyone after that, the eighties kind of shines as the time when, when all the the freaks and weirdos were able to step up and do what they wanted to do. And then in my opinion, it was the nineties when everything started to go into the blender and just get chopped up and regurgitated and, and, you know, hyper, exposed over very, you know, ever shorter timelines. I'm reminded of your comment you made earlier about how the uh, record stores and the DJs were the curators of music back, you know, back then. 
And sometimes they were the same person. I know the record store I went to was like a DJ at a club, so he could certainly tell you what to, but in thinking about the music today, we don't, you know, and your point about how things have evolved since the eighties, we don't have that curation. So, and look, I'm saying this, I'm a cynical middle-aged person because we have technology is democratized music production and we don't have gatekeepers. There's a lot of garbage out there and I don't have time to sift through it. Right. And we have nobody to tell us, you know, what we should listen to. We have nobody like that guy in the record store that I was talking about saying, try this one. If you like, if you like heaven 17, you'll like DAF. Yeah. And you know, the algorithms try to do that, but they're pretty terrible at it. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the whole TikTokization of the music world has, you know, as I say in, in my, in my metaphor has just ground up all trends into these, you know, these it's atomized, the the concept of trends there's no trends in music anymore and if there are they only last a month and then it's over you Mm -hmm. know right and so there's nothing can be cool yeah you know there's nothing that the whole essence of cool was like oh i just found this new thing that nobody else knows about and that is a dynamic that does not exist anymore wow right (laughs) you're right you're right and i still see young people like my i have two children one's an adult and one's younger they want they want they do want that or they want to be the one that's found something new. Yeah. But the funny thing is, you know, uh, with, with young folk of today, they'll find something like the band or Led Zeppelin and to them, it's new (laughs) and and their musical taste has no boundaries. You know, they'll have a, they'll they'll do a, a, you know, a playlist and it'll have like Kanye and then Taylor Swift and then, Robbie Robertson, (laughs) and then, you know, Patsy Cline, and then, you know, whatever, you know, Wu-Tang. And they don't know or care what scenes any of those people came out of or what, what, you know, scenes or or trends that they represent. They just, and, and that's, that's, you know, liberating in a certain sense, but also a little bit depressing. Yeah. And I blame their parents because my parents raised me on good music. I'm afraid to say that's us though. Well, my, my kids have a diverse taste and you know, most kids are not, most people are not going to catch them off guard with, do you ever heard of? Yeah. yeah, I saw a video the other day where a guy, some young 30 year old guy was like a, he's an accomplished musician and he's got his keyboard. He said, Hey, I'm going to do an acoustic version of this song. I just discovered by this group called the squeeze. His song is yeah. called Tempted. It came out in 1981. I don't know. Maybe even, I'm like, are you kidding me? No, nobody's ever heard of this song. Get off. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, it's like one of my, one of my sayings is that cool is a, is a function of scarcity. Mm. And, mm. <laughs> you know, like in back in the day in Minneapolis, there were only a couple of record stores that you could go to, to hear this, this cool music from overseas or from San Francisco or from New York. Yeah. And now you don't need to leave your bedroom to, to hear the most obscure things from Uzbekistan or yeah. from South Korea, you know? Yeah. So briefly, cause I know we've been talking for a while so far, but I'm going to make, look, I'm going to curate something for folks right now and recommend odd fellows, which is the latest uh, information society record, which came out uh, in 2021, but I can wholeheartedly recommend it because it's so reminiscent of the music that I love from the late eighties, early nineties. And in that sense, still, talking about what's popular today, it still seems timeless in the sense that, but for it being you, you that created it, and it was some, you know, newer group, folks wouldn't say, well, that sounds old. It sounds, you know, timeless. Yeah. But to what extent was it just old hat for you? Just sort of getting into what, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, 
I wouldn't imagine it was contrived in the sense you were trying to recapture something from your youth, but I guess I don't know to what extent you've just still got that in your DNA. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. And, and the answer is that because our post-fame career arc has been sort of stretched out, um, we haven't made records. Un- we have no pressure to make records. Nobody's asking us to make mm-hmm. records. We have no record label saying you got to make a record by next September. Right. You know, and we want, you know, I can remember back in the day management saying, Oh, you know, Utah saints are big on the charts. I want to hear a song that sounds like the Utah saints or <laughs> at boy slim or whatever, you know? Right. So, so we have no expectations and we have no financial need to, um, to, to release music. So therefore we only release music when we feel inspired to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think that the two of those things combined has allowed us to make records that we don't have any pressure to sound modern, uh, nor do we have any pressure to sound like what we've always sounded like. Right. And so as a result of that, we just do what comes naturally to us wow. in the words of Ringo Starr. Um, and what comes naturally to us is, is what you hear on, on odd fellows. Mm. You know, I remember uh, on when we released Synthesizer in 2007, I tried really hard to make that album sound right up to the minute, cutting edge electronic music, which at the time, you know, there was like a LCD sound system and, and uh, you know, a, a bunch of sort of resurgent electronic genres. Right. And the first thing, like the first hundred reviews of that album were like, Oh, this sounds like classic information society. (laughs) And I realized that we can't do anything other than what we, what we do, Mm. you know? And, and it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. Like if you think about a a band like Devo, for instance, they don't really know how to make a Devo record anymore. (laughs) So the last few records that they've made, they've had to call in like young people, like hotshot programmers and producers and say like, we don't remember what we did to be Devo. So you have to do that for us. And they've done a pretty good job. Some of their, some of their stuff uh, I've liked in, in recent years, but um, it is easy to forget, especially as technology changes, um, what exactly made up a, a sound or a signature sound for a group. And uh, I think we've avoided that largely just because we haven't released that many records. And when we do, uh, it's only because of love for the music, not because of any other external pressures. Right. Well, we are grateful for that because like I said, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And so reminiscent of the reason I love your music in the first place. Well, thank you. The different since you use uses of samples again, some of which are driving me crazy and you don't have to tell me Paul where they came from, but some of them are driving me crazy. <laughs> Paul, uh, thank you so much for creating the music you did in the 1980s. It's important in the canon of music of that era, but also, it's meaningful. It's so meaningful to so many of us who, in the very least, associate many good memories with your songs. And thank you for your time today. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, it's always a, a pleasure to, to talk. So uh, I've been looking to talk to Paul, reaching out different sources for about a year or more. Wow. Maybe two years now. Yeah. Uh, so I was really excited to speak with him. So that was a lot of fun. That's so and cool. Now, your wish come true. And well worth yeah. it. We're worth the wait, too. Yes. Yeah. All right. So that's the show. Hey, speaking of our show, it is brought to you every week. Thanks in part to our early adopters like Kathy Burke, Rick Mm -hmm. Parker and Karen Flieger. 
And thank you especially to our Secret of Our Success Level Patreon supporters, John Henderson, Craig Coletta, John Kaminsky, Marcus Taylor, and Tony Great. Yay. Yay. You know, yeah, now just it just occurred to me. I'm sure it's not the first time you heard it. Tony, great. <laughs> Come on, He's right? Great. How did that just occur to me? And I a quick shout it. out, by the way. Tony Great's book just dropped this past oh, week. Yes. Oh. Tommy, the Order of Cosmic Champions. Tony, a Thank great you, friend of the show, Thank and. What a cool book. If you haven't checked it out yet, we'll might throw a link in the description of this video yes. or this podcast or something. Great nice. book available at Amazon or wherever you, uh, wherever you shop for books now. Really nice. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, John. So look, uh, thanks. Thank you so much to Tony and everybody else mm-hmm, they mentioned mm-hmm. there. Yeah, and there's plenty of ways to support the show. Mm-hmm. And many of them are free. Most of them are free, including <laughs> right. just send us an email and tell us you're grateful. Mm-hmm. Believe me, this kind of thing, you know, just is the way we know that we're onto something here, you know? Yeah. Uh, and we just got an email from Keith Sheehan. Okay. Uh, nice. And he wrote an idea for an episode. Oh. Because You Belong to the City has been an earworm haunting me for the past two days, I thought I'd share my idea for an 80s song-themed ep- episode. Hmm. 80s sax songs! <gasps> oh, my made. goodness. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote the basic premise is songs where a saxophone features prominently. Mm-hmm. Feel free to completely ignore Kenny G like I do. Oh, <laughs> wow. Goodness. Some examples. The heat is on. Mm-hmm. Fearless whisper. Mm-hmm. Who can it be now? Man eater. I could never oh. take the place of your man. What you need. Nice. Let me know what you think. I love the show. Yay. Thanks, Keith, for writing to us. And, and nice. what I think is it's a great idea. And one I've been, this is like talking about trying to get Paul on the show. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to pull this one off for a while too. A lot of times I get stuck on, I want a certain guest. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we are not experts on certain things. Right. And some things we could just talk about because it's from our experience. Mm-hmm. I want to get a saxophonist. Yes, I've reached out to Tim Capello. No response. <laughs> uh, and there's a few others that I won't name because I have had some responses and I'm still okay. still right. working on it. Oh. Yep. Um, so hopefully it'll be a musician who actually played on some of these records. That would that's be awesome. The, that's what the goal is. Oh, yeah. Um, I could yeah. probably get a guy that played sax in my high school marching band if that helps. Oh, oh. right. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm married to a saxophone player. I mean. Well, there we go. How quickly the bar dropped. I mean, just <laughs> whoa within seconds. <laughs> Hey, I just want to say, I really love when people comment on the 1980s Now Facebook posts. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. with with you know, a question or just, you know, some little humorous thing that occurred to them or answering a yeah. question. I love when people do that. That's another free way to show your support because when you yeah. do that, what Facebook says is like, look, people are interested and they yes. get it in front of more people. You're yeah. getting your thoughts out and it's really helping us. Yeah. It just yeah. makes it more fun too. You know, it, yeah. we always yeah. say that kind of stuff puts the gas in the tank, doesn't it? Just <laughs> there keeps you, you motivated. Yep. <laughs> right. Okay. Hey, with that, we'll be plenty of gassed up when we talk to you next time on 1980s Now. Until next time. Bye-bye, friends. <laughs> this podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. 